So, uh, I don't like starting podcasts, especially when I'm recording with people. So my buddy Troy is here. Sound off, Troy. Word. Okay. Here I am. Um, and we're going to start talking. So, um, <laughs> good start. Good start. Because <laughs> uh, we're already in conversation. I don't want to like lose my train of thought. We can cut this if we don't like it, but uh, no, fuck, fuck it. No cuts. <laughs> no cuts. Oh, God. So, uh, my, my question is like, I wonder if I, cause admittedly I hold a, a bit too much of an optimistic view of humanity just because I'd probably say because I smoke weed and I want a lot of love myself. So, like, I think people are worth loving. But um, I I wonder if, like, you could actually convince enough police officers to just quit their job if you make them understand that the reason why the few small select, like, individuals within the group that they are, like, positively and so often criminalizing are going to continue to commit crime as long as you continue to condemn their entire uh, race as criminals because it's like a subconscious it's it's a uh what's it called a self self uh fulfilling prophecy yeah, yeah where where or i guess it's not self fulfilling because it's not you yourself but your society mm. around you and everyone who holds power is telling you you know Blacks are criminals or Mexicans are criminals or, you know, insert race here Mm. are criminals. Like, you know, for example, go on Google right now and search three white teenagers and then go on Google images, of course, and search three black teenagers. I'm three white teenagers. You're going to get, you know, buddy, buddy, that 70 show style friends sitting there chilling. You search three black teenagers. It's mugshot, 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 mugshot. Absolutely ridiculous. And that's evident even in just, like, small headlines. Like, even in Rome, when there was the, um, the shooting at Bucky's, I, I remember they were, they were contemplating the idea that a African-American gentleman had committed the crime. And so before they even knew the description of the person who had committed the crime, they started running a narrative in the Rome newspaper saying that there was a scary African-American man that was going, that had committed the crime. And I don't, I can't remember cause I didn't read it myself. I read a Facebook post about it a few years after it. And, uh, it didn't have the actual full article, but I wonder, like, I can't remember if it was explicitly said that he was African-American or if it was severely implied. Yeah. Which, I mean, are Aren't the those same, the same, the, the thing, same you know? thing. Yeah. Well, it's like, you know, just ripped out of the headline a couple days ago. There was supposedly a home invasion where a black man uh, broke into somebody's second story window by disassembling an air conditioning unit while three people were sleeping in said bedroom, including a three-year-old. Then apparently this black man gets in the bill, gets in the room, pistol whips the wife, and there are no injuries reported. How you get pistol whipped? It's a pistol whipped, not pistol whipped, struck with a pistol several times in the face. And you mean to tell me there's no injuries? Right, there's no way that... You mean to tell me the neighbor walked in the front door unlocked with a shotgun, let two 
fucking shells fly and they didn't hit shit? Either you're dealing with white people that sleep the heaviest and have the worst aim in the world while also having the worst goddamn home security leaving their goddamn front door unlocked, or the world's worst criminal. And it's like... Oh my goodness. Something ain't adding up there. But but. what you don't understand, Troy, is we're American. We live in a society where the most unlikely thing happen to happen always is the thing that happened. Like if you were to analyze every aspect of that story and try to figure out what the most likely and the least likely scenario is every single like part of that story is the least likely option and it's like geez this guy really 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 wanted to get his name story window with an air conditioner <laughs> this guy in it. wanted to be I famous. guarantee there's no air conditioner at every fucking window easier options it would probably be fucking less loud to just break the damn thing open <laughs> right and so, you know, he's just really... got a, he's just got on a, up, up on a scaffolding with a fucking full tool set, storm, yeah. just fucking, and nobody walks over. He's there for three hours disassembling it piece by piece, and, and then he, he gets, just in, gets the in the window, and, and the first thing, first thing he does, thing he does <laughs> is pistol with the wife. Like, come on! He was just angry about how long it took him. He had a timer going, and he was like, "This should have not taken me this long. This was an in and out job. Come on." But, I mean, this really just goes to show, you know, how the media plays a role in shaping perspectives and how people think about any situation. It's like, you know, just to take it back a couple years, you know, we're obviously experiencing a string of, you know, riots, protests, whatever you want to call it. I think riots are cool, so I use that term. Mm -hmm. Stonewall was a riot. Fuck yeah, it was. That's going way, way too far back. But, you know, let's just rewind the clock a little bit to 2014. A better time when we had a black president and we had black people in power and there was still police brutality and there was still brutalization of protesters and there was still this media narrative around the shooting that happened with Michael Brown. I took a class with uh, Stephanie Miner, former mayor of Syracuse, New York, who was in office. Friend of the show. Friend of the show, yeah. <laughs> Uh, she's providing a reference on my resume, so we can call her friend of the show. Sick. Yeah, Shouts she, out, Stephanie. Yeah, uh, she's the most liberal white woman I know. Either way. Uh, Gotta love him. Yeah. You know, we, we talked a lot in that class about Michael Brown and Ferguson and what happened after that shooting and the FBI report. And it's like, all of the shit that goes into how an individual person is supposed to view that situation is not what they're viewing when it comes to that situation. They're reading memes. They're reading long Facebook rants. They're watching people in their truck. They're listening to the dudes sitting out in the woods walking with a cigar. Like, you know, they're not reading that FBI The moonshine sellers. Yeah, and... it, no matter what side, you know, if you're... Michael Brown should have shot the cop or, you know, the cop is totally right for shooting a guy with his hands up. Right. No matter what side you're on, you're not getting the full picture. You're reading into it what you need to read into it to confirm. In order to find the things that you associate with the worst struggle and pickpocket those things and make it a, a debate about those few things. Oh, yeah. It's, you know, it's ridiculous because Americans are some of the most propagandized people in the entire world. 
but we just decided to call it confirmation bias <laughs> I, instead I of propagandization. I, I literally talked to my R today. I was like, you know what's crazy that I've never even recognized? We get propaganda even when we go into a fucking store. You walk in Walmart, half of the PA system while you're in there is just fucking advertisements <laughs> for the building you're already shopping in. Mm-hmm. Target does that shit. Big Lots does that shit. It's so crazy to me that I've never realized, like, that right there is literally a clear and cut, like, example uh-huh. of what propaganda is. I know. And it's like... You know, they won't call it propaganda when Walmart sits there and advertises to you 14 hours a day or whatever. Or when Amazon is running ads on literally everything that you fucking view. But it's like, I try to sit out and read the Communist Manifesto out loud in a park somewhere and people are going to tell me that I'm trying to do propaganda. Soviet (laughs) propaganda. Half the people... That damn Russian (laughs) Karl Marx. Okay, so... All right, uh, we still haven't even gotten to the beginning of what I want to talk about. So I want, I want, like, I want, I, I want us to each go, and then we'll move on. Yeah, go ahead. But go ahead. like my my favorite thing about leftism and like people's just complete and utter misunderstanding of the whole concept of leftism is that like, for example, when you think of socialism as a brainwashed American. You think of Nazi, Nazi Germany. Mm-hmm. When you think of communism, you think of Russia. But what what your history teachers don't teach you is, one, socialism was only the economic policy of Nazi Germany. It had Not nothing even. to do with social politics. It had nothing to do with its, you know, um, foreign policy and things of that nature. And then when you look at Russia, one of the leaders of modern communism within that state, Vladimir Lenin, literally said, do not let Stalin become the leader of this party. And then they let him become the leader of the party. And then everyone just associates communism with Joseph Stalin, who barely even practiced the fucking theory Outside of, again, the economic system within the country. Well, it's like, uh, I read a book called Darkness at Noon, which is a piece of historical fiction, but a good one at that. Uh, I wish I could remember Arthur Kessler's name. That's his name. Nice. Uh, I'm proud of you. You know, when it comes to the economic policy of the USSR, you can't deny that the economy became much stronger and much more industrialized over the course of 50 years. Especially you when you look. You can admit that without subscribing to the policies that Stalin put forth when it came to repression, suppression, propaganda, you know, propaganda. You know, I don't even necessarily agree with a command economy. Like, right, there's yeah. many different streams of even economic thought on the left. It's like these same people that'll say communism is Stalinism have no clue about uh, Burkina Faso. Right. 
or, you know... Vietnam. The, the history of leftism, you know, in South America, in Brazil, Cuba, Venezuela. You hear big, scary Venezuela and think about Maduro, but you hear nothing about, you know, the Chavistas or the Bolivarian Revolution or Lula in Brazil. It's insane. Or, you know, AMLO, who's supposed to be a democratic socialist down in Mexico. He's a neoliberal, but that's for a different day. But it's like, <laughs> there's all these different strains of thought coming out of North America, South America, Africa. Maoism in China and then you have so many different flavors of it. You had the Paris Commune back in 1871. Mm -hmm. You had, you know, before uh, Charles de Gaulle in France, mm -hmm. the Communist Party was the ruling party of French democracy. And it's like, our education is so quick to tell us that, oh, you know, the USSR was the first communist revolution they're the only communist country, and anything else that became communist was because of the USSR, which is scary. And right. it's like... As if, if you... there's no access to education anywhere else on the planet except for the United States, China, and Russia. That's it. They're the ones spreading these things. They're not coming to these revelations themselves mm -hmm. by any means. There that's were for no sure. communists in <laughs> Europe until October 1917, Okay. <laughs> That's how it happened. That's when they took it. over. I read it in a book one time. I don't remember the name of the book. <laughs> gotta... I don't remember the author or where I read it, but... I, I remember I waking it. up feeling really dazed and confused. <laughs> oh, my goodness. The big Daddy Stalin. I just remember the, the boot. <laughs> yep. Oh, my goodness. All right. So, <laughs> we should probably start going yeah. into what we're going to talk about. Um. So, my... My first point that I wanted to talk about is kind of what we feel uh, individually make the basics of a proper status quo challenging revolution. Mm -hmm. um, here, I think I'll I, let I you take the start floor. here. Yeah. So I think for understanding revolution, it's difficult to outline what that even means without sounding like some old white dude at a college or university lecturing to you. But you have to have a theory of state, of the state, of right. the government, but even deeper than the government, the state. This idea of state power, state authority, state legitimacy. And, you know, for further reading, if anyone wants to look at Scotch Pole, Huntington before Vietnam... Or, uh, you know, uh, even Gramsci, but that's a little bit more in-depth right. into the cultural kind of stuff. But it's like, you have to have an understanding of state power and how the state works. Because any modern revolution that you're talking about is the overthrow of one state and the rebuilding of another state on its ashes, basically. Mm -hmm. You can't have this revolution without taking into account the state. And I think that the best way to conceptualize the beginning of a revolution is when a legitimate contender vying for state power becomes credible or has some type of support among a broad base of the public. And so my example for people that might have a tough time conceptualizing this is, you know, Bernie Sanders in the Democratic Party. 
you know, Bernie Sanders isn't trying to overthrow the United States government and turn it into the United Soviet States of America. (laughs) But he was trying to kind of do a soft coup in the Democratic Party, which he thought would ultimately result in a state that would be more amenable to democratic socialist principles. What Bernie Sanders failed to account for is the fact that our state, our U.S. government, will never let that happen right? without some type of reason for it to happen. That reason being massive social movements, a huge legitimation crisis, which is something I want to talk about in a little bit, okay. or just a, a cultural movement even towards... Uh, less state power or more state intervention or something like that along those lines. You can't have a revolution without a state. Right. That's the basic principle that I think people need to keep in mind. And I I can definitely agree with you on all points, but I, I feel that one of the most important parts of a revolution for those who are witnessing it and wanting to be a part of it and looking for ways to improve it is to recognize that these things come in stages. Like, mm-hmm. uh, I talked about this on my last podcast and, um, I mean, I'd like to talk about it again. You, you have a lot of people that I've seen on Twitter or just, you know, podcasts that I listen to a lot of leftists saying, you know, all these critiques of the Black Lives Matter movement and what really needs to be done in order to make it more, you know, sustainable and things of that nature, which I did myself and I feel is a, you know, an understandable thing to do. It's a conversation to have. Right. But I think the most important thing that I myself as well as others who have done this need to realize is that although the Black Lives Matter movement might be missing, you know, important pieces to the puzzle for a leftist movement that does not mean that the structure that will be found in the american people throughout this movement as well as the understanding that through that you can create systemic change Mm -hmm. um will lead us down the road towards a true revolution I, i i don't feel i don't feel you and i will ever see you know, the United States truly come to its knees because of revolution. But I think throughout our lifetime, especially because a lot of, you know, technology and things of that nature have made these ideas more accessible and connecting with people who hold these ideas in order to buff up your understanding is more accessible. I think we will begin to see more and more, you know, demonstrations, riots, whatever you want to call them throughout our lifetime. But again, I don't see this all of a sudden overthrowing capitalism Mm -hmm. by the end of this. A big thing that I think modern movements of all sorts, shapes, and kinds miss is this point about intersectionality, bringing together different grievances from different populations and all relating them to one central theme, which is capitalism, without a doubt. The capitalist economic system is the basis of American society. Right. So much so that Americans are brainwashed enough to think that capitalism literally just means buying and selling things Mm -hmm. or trading things or bartering. When in reality, capitalism is an economic system that's only existed over maybe the past 500 years 
if you give it more credit than it needs. Right, exactly. People I'm, barter, people trade, people have money. Right. You know, but you don't have the specific wage labor system or the specific global trade system that you see with the rise of industrial capitalism over the past 400 years. And I think on top of that, a lot of people uh, associate... Um, Shit, I forgot where I was going with this. Uh, I think a lot of people also associate, and the the U.S. government is fantastic at this, associate things as race, uh, you know, poverty level, uh, class, or not even class struggle, but like uh, where you come from, your religion, your sexual orientation. They consider all these things, and I even learned them in my psychology classes, as like these abstract social constructs and when i was learning about that i i i failed to bring it up in class and i really regret it but i i always thought that it's so funny that it's so blatantly in front of us like if race is a social construct that has to mean that race is not the determinate factor that causes struggle within a society if religion is a social construct then that can't be the central struggle point in a society so then you have to say well what's one of these things that you can say is not a societal um construct and that one thing is the struggle between the oppressor and the oppressed and i'd like to just add that the reason that you can't chalk economics up to the same type of social construct as you can other identities is because of the strictly material basis of your economic status, your class. It's not like, you know, your I was born poor. Right. But I was not born a poor person. Correct. You know, I was born into poverty. Correct. I was not, you know... You're not born into poverty the same way you're born into being a person of color or being gay. Right. The purely material basis for things like poverty and class are the reason that they have to be central to the question of struggle. Because all of the other aspects of that struggle are immediately related to the issue of oppressor oppressed, Mm -hmm. bourgeoisie, proletariat, however you want to put it, ownership. Workers, however you want to put it. That power dynamic is so central to the idea of the American economy and American society that we practice, we're like fish in water. We don't see it. We don't feel it, but it's all around us. Every single moment of every single day. We breathe that shit. We eat that shit. We shit that shit. (laughs) You You can't question something that is so immediately involved in every aspect of your life which makes it the most indefinable and the most like unchangeable aspect of society if you can build it into every aspect of your life then you feel as if it's something that can't not exist exactly you're you know it almost becomes naturalized to you. You think that this is the way it's always been. This is the way it's always going to be. I this love, is the way I it, love that argument. <laughs> people will say that it's the way it needs to be. Exactly. And this is where I wanted to bring up legitimation crisis. There's this old dead German guy named something Habermas, who I read this from in a class. I thought his work was boring, but when the professor explained it, it made a lot of sense. 
He was writing from the Frankfurt School in the early 1970s, right after Vietnam demonstrations, right after the big civil rights movement. And he said that the United States was gearing up for a legitimation crisis, and by that he meant the people's faith in the institutions, in the government, in the economic system were beginning to wither away because the institutions, the economic system, were beginning to fail to continue producing the things that gave them legitimacy in the first place. Right. For example, he was focused on social mobility. The fact that you can be born dirt poor, grow up, and become middle class. <laughs> you know, the the social mobility rates in the United States have gone from decent for white people with that big asterisk to really grim over the past, since the 1970s and 80s. Right. And Habermas really thought that this was going to give way to a crisis where the United States government would not be able to respond in an effective manner, that they would lose their legitimacy among the people. I don't understand why that hasn't happened, you know? I don't understand <laughs> where the legitimacy comes from. And the more I try to think about where that legitimacy keeps coming from, the more I just run into brick walls, it feels like. Because everyone knows the politicians are dirty, Everybody knows that politics is a sham. Everybody knows that the rich are getting rich and the poor are getting poorer, but still no one does anything about it. And I can't tell if I have to chalk that up to Americans being sadists and loving, <laughs> loving the pain, or if it's just people throwing their hands up and saying there's nothing to do about it. So I actually, this, I, this is a very good point and I'm glad you made this because I've been thinking about that, that same thing lately. I've, I, okay. So I go to counseling and Me too, a, 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 good, a good portion of the conversations I have with my counselor right now are like, why is the world not on fire right now? Why are we not completely burning this country down? Uh, as a parody, of course, cause that would be hilarious. Uh, if they decide to do that, and it would be awful. Fuck Target. Yeah. <laughs> when we start in uh, City Hall. Um, but, like... Parody. <laughs> but, like, it all... It, it relates to... Psycho it kind of has this little point where it breaks from just sociology and, and you know, things of that nature. And it kind of meets at psychology. Because one thing that I learned... One useful thing that I learned in my psychology classes is... Uh, and this also goes with philosophy as well, that one cannot deny its own existence, which means that one cannot deny the things that it associates with being important to its existence because then that would nullify the necessity for them to exist, which is a quandary that most people cannot come to without going fucking mad. Um... So you you see that people who associate America and freedom so strong strongly with who they are as a person, they can't see the struggle around them even when they're being directly affected by it because denying the system that bred them to be what they think they are and what they think is important to their existence, 
they have lost all connection to the world around them because by denying those things, they'd be denying the importance of their own existence. Mm. And it's important to note that we're talking about a very specific type of American freedom. We're not talking about freedom to not have your teeth kicked in by the police or freedom to not be dirt poor and homeless. We're talking about the goddamn freedom to get a goddamn double cheeseburger at 3.30 a.m. from Walmart fucking... McDonald's, Burger King, wherever's open 24-7 at this point. I don't remember what's open 24-7. With 13 AK-47s fully loaded. If I can't own a fucking recreational nuke, this isn't the America that I know. (laughs) And and sell it to a McDonald's in exchange for a lifetime (laughs) supply of Big Macs. You know... We're talking about a very specifically American set of freedoms, which... Because, you know, the freedom to exist as a white person without fear of your own death in a political system that is so keen and built on the just absolute murdering of their own people. Like, if that's not enough freedom for you, I don't really get it. Like, that, for me, it, like... To be able to get pulled over by a police officer and never for a second go, uh, I might not be ever I might not this walk cars. away from yeah, this. Yeah, exactly. I, the fact that I never have to have that realization, like, that's free enough for me. And I wish that even on the basis of simplicity, that would be enough to convince people that this country is not free. And, you know, that make, that makes an interesting thought pop into my head, you know. What if the legitimation crisis hasn't happened specifically because white Americans can say, oh, there's some people that have it worse than us. Maybe we just shut our mouths and let this keep happening so that we keep our nice privileged position at the uh, lower middle. (laughs) Yeah. And yeah. Okay. So I actually have a perfect example for that. So I grew up a... I'd say moderately evangelical. Like, we didn't walk down the street and knock on people's doors and go, do you want to come to church this Sunday? But, like, everything that we did was associated with Christianity. Like, our get-togethers, always praying, always having something to do with God. You know, the places we go to visit, always having to do with God. So much of our, you know, personality as a family was about God. Um... Since I grew up like that, I like, oh, fuck, I kind of forgot where I was going with this shit. Um, I, I hit the dab pen far too many times. Ah, <laughs> uh, shit. It's all right. I actually have a good example that I think might go along. Oh, wait, 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 wait. Okay, I got it. I got it. Um, so my whole life, no matter what struggle I was going through, and this is even just on the basis of like struggles as a child, like I can't reach the fucking cookie jar so i i get mad because i always have to ask my mom to get cookies for me like even on the basis of that simplicity the main thing that my parents reminded me of on a daily basis was sorry our our audio fucked up i don't know if i'm going to be able to fix that or even care to fix that but um So what I was trying to say was, like, even on the basis of simple struggles in my life, my parents and even my family around me would always remind me, like, there's kids or just people in general, they'd say, that have it far worse than you. And I remember growing up in, like, the child's ministry and, like, the youth group at my church. One thing that was always made clear to us and what we always donated to, the missions trip that 
people went on, things of that nature, were always to super poor countries. And they always depicted poor, starving children. And that was just bred into our minds our whole fucking life. And it wasn't until very... And, of course, the the white family, you know, you know, you got Bill and Sarah and their kids, Lakeland and, uh, and Aaron, you know, they go to Zimbabwe and they, you know, set up a local church, you know, to really help the community. And it's like... Or, I, or Haiti. <laughs> right. I, I really never got it until recently, but, like, that was, like... Cause Christianity in its truest form, for the most part, comes from England. England, of course, was a very imperialistic, colonialism-type country. So, of course, their Christianity is going to involve some form of imperialism. And a, a, a form of imperialism is even a form of imperialism when you're talking about interrupting a, a, a third-world country's economy by inserting a surplus of money and then leaving and not building the economy to sustain that that right there should be a fucking war crime because you see countries like haiti countries like ghana countries like rwanda who got all this funding from these church organizations be 10 times worse than before those organizations organizations showed up when they left because their economy could not meet the standard that it had now grown to and they never really got back Mm -hmm. and so I never understood that until recently but like even what's supposed to be my religion what's supposed to be about loving your neighbor what's supposed to be about truly socialist leftist ideals comes back and goes actually we're gonna just do an imperialism real quick yeah (laughs) You know, Jesus was probably an anarchist, if you think about it. Yeah, probably. People said Jesus was a communist, but there were no, there was no state back then, you fools. But no. yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. so let's fucking get All next right. point. Yeah, next okay. point. Right. We have notes, believe it or not. <laughs> so I wanted to talk about. So we'll hit these points. We'll go. I, I'll read it. You'll go quick. I'll go quick. Boom. We'll go to the oh, next. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I wanted to talk about propaganda in this country and how it shifted from being pro-union and things of that nature and how unions and workers were very much, you know, leftist people without having the the definition of leftism being Mm -hmm. associated with them to now companies like Walmart, Lowe's and Target, I believe, all playing the same version of the same anti-union ad. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The the big thing to remember is that the death of socialism in America was truly a death. There was something there. Mm-hmm. Eugene Debs ran for president as a socialist on the Socialist Party ticket and got 12% of the popular vote in the 30s. This was at the same time that someone named uh, Franklin Roosevelt, you might know him, got elected to four terms in office as a democratic socialist. But the main thing you have to remember is how powerful the Red Scare in America was. Mm. The big scare behind the you know communism, socialism, Cuban Missile Crisis, you know, follow the Berlin Wall, straight up through there. It's like... 
Anything that was associated with left politics in America was immediately smeared as communist and Soviet. Mm -hmm. That was all they had to do. That is how stupid the majority of Americans were back then and how ready they were to embrace capitalism if they were white. Right. And in saying that, you kind of brought me to a point I hadn't reached yet. But I feel even even for the most part... Your upper class, maybe not upper class, but your middle class white American through, you know, like the early 1900s, even your middle class white American at that time was not getting a full education in that a lot of times they would leave school to work or just simply would have to work during school. So we're not able to attend school. So you have that as a problem. And then you also have already pre-existing notions about things that are not capitalistic. And then you have this issue with Russia. <clears throat> well, now, of course, what do you do? You pin one to the other because you want to suppress the people, but you also want to unite them in a common enemy to distract them from their suppression. So you make Russia the bad guy. And... Because of the lack of education, the fact the fact that the education system in that country already sucked dick, plus you have people not getting most people not getting an education. I mean, really, what do you expect? They're so sheep like and it's not even and now now since that generation where they could have received the proper education, you know, I'm not quite sure that propaganda was in its full swing prior to World War Two, for the most part, it really hadn't completely amped up in the way that it is today. But ever since that generation, it has. Mm-hmm. It's like you're born into a sea of propaganda as an American. Mm-hmm. No doubt, full stop. The public education system portrays American history in this, you know, amazing light. It's like, I didn't know America were the baddies until AP U.S. history. The only reason I knew America was the baddies is because I had a good teacher that mm-hmm. that made us read Howard Zinn's People nice. Histo- People's History. If it wasn't for me reading that book, I don't know where I would be right now. Because, honest to God, that book and Bernie Sanders' presidential campaign in 2016 are the two things that introduced me to left politics. And without them, you know... I could be Von Mises right now. I could be Friedman right now. Because those are the things, as, you know, an intelligent young man or whatever, those are the things that people want to expose you to. Right. Those are, you know, those are the names that you hear in Econ 101 at a Colgate University. You know? You know, you don't... And then you take poli-sci, you know, 151, the base level course. It's like, you're... You read von Mises, you read Friedman, you read Nietzsche, you read all this shit. And then it's like, oh, we'll throw Marx in at the end. He's all of Marxism. And it's like, there's such a disconnect because it's like, Marx never claimed to be the guy. Right. He just wrote the book on capitalism. <clears throat> but it's like, you don't get exposed to Bakunin, Lenin. You don't get exposed to uh, the conquest of bread. You don't read any marks other than capital. You don't read modern authors. And you that's don't read even Chomsky. if they read capital. I feel like for the most... Because I took, I took a poli-sci class and they, they, <clears throat> they made us read the Communist Manifesto, but they did not require right. us to read 
capital, which but, is the more revolutionary text of the two. Well, the thing about the communist revolution We're is... We're off topic again. The, yeah, keep, keep going, the, keep going. The communist, the communist manifesto is like the equivalent of Marx's long Facebook rant that exactly. he wanted people to share around, you know? That was a quick... That's a great that's description. It's a quick 30-page little booklet... That's trying to be like, hey, you, yeah, this shit sucks. Come on, come on, join the yeah, union. Don't throw it. Come he's on, He's trying dude. to fit it into its smallest form it's just to be able to shout it from the top of his fucking house. It's shorter than a goddamn magazine, and people are like, this is communism. <laughs> Wait, real quick, because I have a joke that kind of missed its mark because we've gone past it, but I would like to bring it back simply to make this joke, and then we should move on. Um, I love that in American society, uh, like, propaganda, capitalist propaganda is so strong that even in Pornhub, most of the so-called fetishes are just (laughs) women at their job. And it's like, it's like... Capital has such control over me that the only time that I can even have sex is while I'm actively on the clock. <laughs> and I, I don't even get a 30-minute fucking lunch for it either. I have to fucking lose money for this sex right here. Alrighty. Uh, keep it pushing. <laughs> I, I said, um, on top of propaganda you see and especially because of the access that facebook and other social media outlets grant um you're seeing more and more examples of voter suppression come up that you might not know of for example i i'm still to this day every single day i'm finding new stuff out about how awful this country is and furthering my you know belief system how many lifetimes do you have (laughs) yeah exactly but um one of the new ones that I just discovered is the fact that... So, when you... Uh, obviously, you're going to know this because you're much smarter than me. You, The way that you have to uh, sign up to vote or register to vote by mail, you have to have a mailing address. Indeed. You can't have a P.O. box. So, most of North Dakota's Native American population lives on fucking reservations, which do not provide a mailing address. So they all have to have P.O. boxes in order to get their mail, which means none of that population, which is a majority of the the state's population, can even vote in its elections. I read a nice little thing today. Um, Fun fact, if you are in jail, you are not able to vote but you still count in your county's voting population, which is the population of people that is used to dish out state funding. So if you have a county with 50 people, they get 50 people's worth of resources. Right. But if you have a county with 50 people that just so happens to have a jail in it that also has 50 people, you get 100 people worth of resources. And this is also useful when it comes to determining... The voting population of specific voting districts. Because if you have a district where you have, say, 200,000 people, but there's a jail, three jails that each hold, you know, 6,000 people, that's an extra 18,000 people in that district that aren't going to be voting, but still count towards that county's total district. And so it's super useful when it comes to gerrymandering, because you can figure in that that specific population will not be able to vote. And use that to your advantage when drawing the lines. Good old 13th Amendment. I hate it so much. I just hate it so much. For anybody that 
for anyone still listening, thank you. You're a special type of person. But the 13th Amendment <coughs> was supposed to get rid of slavery. But, but there's a big button there. But in that amendment that or I don't know if it says but, but no, there's a it's, big it's old a, but. Um, with the exception of I believe it's oh come on. I, I wish should, I could remember. I should know it. It says it. no one shall ever be able to own or make property of another human. Um outs I think it's like outside of the context of imprisonment or something, something like something that. like that. Yeah. I mean I was probably just so very off, but that's okay. But yeah, no. So, I mean, and people Twitter wondering. Twitter is fucking sick because like every single day I am able to see like a post with like 13,000 retweets of like just a clear and concise example of voter suppression that otherwise I would have no knowledge of or police brutality or, you know, uh, agent provocateurism, where they're, you know, everyone I feel like at this point has seen the video of the cops smashing the windows in Minneapolis that started off this whole big riot thing. It's like, Twitter gives you the raw shit. Right. You know? Twitter's sick as fuck. Shout out Twitter. Um, Twitter can also be terrible, though, yes, if you get down can. the wrong rabbit holes. Oh my it can goodness. be worse than 4chan. If, yeah, if you, if you like the wrong post with a fucking anime fucking... Anime profile, <laughs> profile picture. You just fucked yourself. Um, the next thing that I put is uh, uh, tying into the propaganda. God, this is going to be a long episode if we do all this Woo. shit. So, <laughs> tying into the separation of urban and rural folks and how that's used to create an an, an even new level of propaganda. Mm-hmm. As someone from Cheryl who went to VVS, which is a predominantly rural place, we have a goddamn FFA. <laughs> and if you don't know what that means, that's the future farmers of America. <laughs> goddamn right. You know... But having friends who are from Rome, who are from Utica, who came from Syracuse, who now live in Syracuse, who lived in Syracuse and then got kicked out of their apartment so they're back in Vernon, it's like, you know, you kind of lose sense of how deep the urban-rural divide in in America can be. But part of what's so interesting about that in America is that the difference between a rural person and an urban person isn't just, like, a political difference... Or a cultural difference. It's also like an economic difference. And it's like, how how can people reconcile those differences other than with that old trope like, oh, we're all American. You know, well, right. what does that mean? But are we? I mean, last time I checked, if you, you know, sag your pants or wear a crooked hat, that's un-American and that's, you know, disrespectful and, like, who would ever do that? Or if you kneel during the special song. Right, exactly. So I I brought up this point because I am someone who... I, like, I tread the line in my upbringing between city and country. Mm -hmm. I live in a a nice little community called the town of Lee, which is (laughs) not Lee Center... Although many people think it is, nor is it Rome. It is directly in between the two cities. And so, like, the street that I grew up on, Grandview, was, like, suburbia. But literally two minutes down the road, where I now live with my grandmother, over by Sleepy Hollow Road, 
you got like country land, you got a separation of the houses, you got 13 Trump flags, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? And I mean, even right there, that's a that's a separation of country and rural, I, or a rural and urban. Me saying that is a separation of the two. But it's it's, in my opinion, and I'm going to give it quick so we can move on. My opinion is that because rural folks make less money for the overall sphere of folks, it, they produce less labor for the people who want to remain in power. Of course, they're going to condemn them in some way or another as to lead people to not want to be like them. But I saw a documentary, and I wish I could remember what it was called. It was on YouTube, and it was only 30-something minutes long. But it, it documented the true history of the redneck. And one of the biggest points that was made was, like, one of the big things in that culture at that time was, like, boxcars and stuff like that. But boxcars were not built to race. Boxcars were built to outrun the police. And so the fact that that is where you find the creation of that subculture, and then you get it not even a hundred years later, and they are, for the most part, the majority of the pro-police, pro-Republican, pro-capitalism, pro-Trump, pro-Trump subgroup in this country, and yet their entire creation as a subgroup in this population was the very opposite of those ideals. Mm-hmm. Um, All right, keep it pushing again. Okay. Uh, so I put the lack of strength of the protests. Uh, my three main points that I really want to talk about um, are the divide within the protests. So, for example, when I went to the Utica protest, I uh, it was of no reason of anyone else other than my own insecurities and feelings that I felt out of place at the protest. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I felt like it was not my place to be there to protest. And I... I in listening, I always shout them out, but listening to BP Plattis the other day, like, I came to the realization that that is intentional and that is created so that it, it takes a step of motivation that you could have to help a certain cause and creates this this idea that, you know, you have you can't fight for someone else because you don't know their struggle, so it's not appropriate for you to use the power that you have as an individual to help that because that's not your fight. Yeah, I see that. I see that going around a lot. And it's, you know, people say, you know, you know, you see all these posts where it's like people talking about how white people don't belong at these protests and white people don't belong in these spaces. And it's like, that's not the point of, you know, the protests, the protests. It's, you know, you can have an intersectional lens and you can participate. You just have to know how to participate. And Which, it's it's a learning process and people are willing to teach you. You if you're you willing to learn, ask. there's people willing to teach you. you just That's what ask. they're not going to tell you. Right. But I think and we'll 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 bounce back one more time on this point. I think one very common thing and I I um listen to another podcast <laughs> Chapo Trapo on this very thing the I don't know if you've seen it going around on Facebook the white fragility book no I haven't um so it's like a liberal HR woman 
who goes around and gives racial inequality classes to like oh yes offices. i just watched this yes oh my god and it it was it was so funny to me because the problem with trying to convince white people like you have to be an ally is their necessity to be in control of everything it's a so colonizer they're, they're, mentality they're going to create how they're to be supportive of the Black Lives Matter movement as a white person, rather than simply asking the group that should be leading these charge charges, how can I help? You're going to go, this is the way that I should help. And rather than it being literally anything material outside of maybe a donation, if you're lucky... You have these fucking cop-outs like, if I'm ever racist, I want you to check me and I'll I'll take it into consideration. I'll, I'll you know, eat it right up. If I do and, a racism, <laughs> please let me know. File a complaint with HR. And I want I the cuffs learn. on me. I will learn. And, like, that is an attempt at making a... Starting a narrative of this being a white oppressive thing, making white people acknowledge their racism, making the white person the oppressed, of course. But it's also a combination of liberal and democratic views being so weak to create any real change. I mean, what good what good is one Karen in one office building that has like 42 employees? What good is it for her to tell, you know, so-and-so who might be a, a, a Muslim in her building to walk up to her while she's at her place of employment and go, so I, I think I'm racist and I need you right now to tell me how to not be racist to you. And it's like, if you just simply weren't a racist person, you wouldn't have to ask that question because you wouldn't have to worry about doing something racist. If you just were a genuinely good person who values this random person that you work with as a human being rather than the things you associate with their personality, like their fucking religion, which is none of your business, uh, or their race, and using that as a tool to make you the good guy. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's colonizer mentality. And I think if you want a really good understanding of our current moment in American politics with the whole racial animosity that's occurring, you got to look to the Black Panthers and you've got to look to Franz Fanon and you've got to look to the anti-colonial struggle in Algeria. What What Fanon and what the Black Panthers' real insight was is that the American, African-American population is a colonized population in their own country. Right. And that to really understand what black liberation would look like, you have to understand what decolonization looks like in one country. Mm -hmm. Which is another reason why the American empire needs to be smashed before we can have any true type of racial healing in this country um real quick my favorite saying that i've ever said as an analogy for that is uh you can't use a broken mixer to make brownies true you gotta buy a new mixer Mm -hmm. 
So you got to throw the old one out too. If you yep, just keep and that probably burn around. it in the front yard. Uh, you know, as a parody. Um, got to use my flashlight now. The so the other few things that I wanted to talk about are the two different types of revolutions that are possible. Um, and if we are to get to one or the other, what things would be necessary in the sense that like, well, I'll, I'll kick us off on this one. Okay. I'll, I'll give you some sub points, what I was looking for. So a few things that I, I, I heard and really resonated with me are that the fact that there's two very distinctly different types of protests and, they are in intentionally different to for reasons you'll understand so you have a, a demonstration which is an appealing to the authority system that exists to bring attention to a problem and ask for them to change it then you have an insurrection which is a complete dis distrust of the authority that was in place get rid of it and create a new one in order to make it so this problem does not even exist. Um, and a few things with that. So we're seeing mostly demonstrations mm -hmm. in the United States. Um, and I feel that this is for a few reasons. One, most people have been in their houses for the last two months and they'll take any excuse to go mm -hmm. out. Two, any excuse that they see is a good excuse. And to go out and demonstrate for this is a valid reason to I, leave your house during this pandemic. It very much is. The WHO, I believe it was the WHO or a, a political organization aside from the WHO, who said that it is more deadly to be a black American within this country than it is to contract COVID-19. Mm -hmm. Um which I think is a good point made by whoever made that mm -hmm. point. Um, but another thing that I put here was that the, I wrote economic influences during protests. So the reason why we're not seeing a lot of insurrection in this country, it, there's a few reasons, but one of the ones that I find to be the most prominent is when you have a, a population of the overall ma majority of the, the folks doing the protests... They're mostly, you know, more well-off white people, at least in our area where we, ha where I've been. There mm -hmm. has been a lot more protests that I've gone to that had mostly, like, liberal white people. And that leads them to be in a place where they are not struggling economically enough to have so little left to lose that they would not be afraid to riot. It's also, I think, a symptom of white liberals' inherent trust for institutional power. Mm -hmm. um, as well as I wrote that um, as long as we continue to stay stagnant and peaceful, we're not going to see the true systemic change that the, the media thinks that, you know, wants to convince us that we're going to... Uh, you know, achieve. Mm -hmm. I, I believe it was Cuomo who said, oh, it's okay, guys. You got what you wanted. You can pack it up now and go home. Yeah, that was Governor Cuomo. Like, that is them saying, like, nope, we don't want any more of this. This is because, as far as we're going to go. Right. And that means that, that that's a direct threat. That is him explicitly saying, 
you're going to go home and you're going to take these little scraps that we're giving you because if you don't, we're going to fuck your shit up. Mm-hmm. What people seem to forget in America is the inherent threat of violence that people in positions of power, especially executive authority authority in this country, holds. Governor Cuomo could use the New York State National Guard mm-hmm. against protests. That is an authorized action that he is able to take because of actions taken by Donald Trump as the chief executive. Mm-hmm. Executive authority in this country comes with the authority to commit acts of state violence. Full stop. And that can't be lost when it comes to people like Governor Cuomo saying things like that. Right. And then you got all kinds of ways that the Geneva Convention is just actively being broken. Just actively being shit on. Used as a dog's newspaper. And there's... I mean, I've seen a few clips of, like, international news. Of course, I'm not going to see a lot because they wouldn't, you know, Mm -hmm. we wouldn't want that. But the few clips that I've seen, like, when they were talking about Washington, D.C., they called it a city built by slaves. Like, that was some eye-opening, like, fucking true reporting Mm-hmm. That, like, you would never see in this country. Well, part of what it's difficult to remember as an American sometimes is that foreign news outlets are in foreign languages. Right. So maybe if you just learn one or two, you can get some news from outside the United States. Shit, learn Spanish and you can read almost all of South America's news. Right. You gotta learn Portuguese for some Brazil, but it's like, they're cousins. They're close enough. Right, exactly. Um, It's funny because, like, my the few people who listen to this podcast might not know this. Uh, my girlfriend is from Brazil as is her mother and father. And, uh, so it's funny that sometimes she's watching Brazilian like news and they love them some Bolsonaro on that TV. I'll tell you what, like I saw the week that he had coronavirus, they put, (laughs) they put, they put, fucking pictures from seven years ago as the pictures of him to prove that he was well and fine. <laughs> and it was like in, in front of, I saw one that I, I read an article in front of a, a restaurant that doesn't even exist anymore. <laughs> so there's that. But I also put in here that um, it's important to understand the difference in the types of protests because the thing that insurrection offers is spontaneity as well. Yeah. You know, you don't have police officers already waiting outside of the spot that you guys have been protesting on for the last 30 days with their guns loaded, you know, their snipers set up, the barricades ready to capture you guys all if you try to get rowdy. Like, insurrection and true rioting offers you the ability to really inflict damage quickly swiftly and in some cases safely and what i the example the the two examples that i think relate to this that i can get into quickly are minneapolis Mm -hmm. where the city council and mayor have agreed that they will be dismantling the police department and moving towards community-based alternatives it only took an insurrection right that w- was an insurrection. Let me do an insurrection real quick. Hold that on. That was a full-on insurrection. They burned the police precinct. Right. They burned... Uh, they looted 
They were violent. They took violent steps towards, you know, they demonstrated their willingness to fight tooth and nail for what they believed was right. And then my second example is the quote-unquote insurrection that happened in Seattle with the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone or CHOP. Yeah, it's CHOP now. now. They're trying to be CHOPO. Anyways. (laughs) Shout out. They're a demonstration masquerading as an insurrection is what I would call it. Because they did not do anything nearly as extreme as the people of Minneapolis did. But they're getting a lot of attention because they've set up this 24... This 24... It's not even a commune. It's just a 24-7 demonstration. Right. And they think that by having this area where people can just demonstrate 24-7, that that's going to have the same effect as some type of insurrection. Just because they've occupied a, a few blocks near City Hall. That's not an insurrection. Right. That's not systemic change. That's not violence against the people who are perpetrating violence against you. That's not self-defense. That's just a demonstration with extra steps. Yeah, that's definitely true. Um, so now we'll talk a little bit about um, <clears throat> where what we should not be doing in these protests in order to not allow them to kind of lose their strength and the motivation of the people. Um, I, I feel as if the, the first point I wanted to make is that we, we as a, a, especially in social media, have to stop praising our good cop allies. Um, in a lot of instances that I've read on Twitter and stuff like that, the picture goes viral, but then 15, 20 minutes later, they're getting maced or tear gassed or you rubber, know, bullets. rubber bullets or beaten on just just strictly with batons <laughs> and stuff like that. Um, so that needs to not happen. And it's like, you know, it's important to even if you have the disfortune of being related to a cop or, you know, your friend's dad is a cop, don't be afraid to just stop talking to him. Yep. Make sure that people realize that, you know, not only are you committed to your values, which is something you should be, but that you're specifically committed to the values of anti-police sentiment right now. Because, you know, even if you know, they just think you're some annoying kid, like you're their nephew or something. If you're just some annoying kid, they're not going to think much of it. But, you know, maybe it's something. Right. And I feel like also being just uh, somebody's, you know, nephew, although I would expect, at least in my family, if I had an uncle who was a cop that I questioned about it, I would probably just be bullied by my entire family. (laughs) But, like... um, even if you had that relationship with the cop, there's a there's a true chance that you might have a, you know, better opportunity to convince that person, like, what they are and what they're doing is wrong. It's true. It's true. Because you have to remember that the police are people, too. As much as we have been saying that cops are pigs, because mm. they also are, they are people, and they have hearts and minds. And when it, when it comes to this battle of hearts and minds... Sometimes it does take one conversation where maybe the person doesn't come out and admit that they were wrong, but it kind of sows the seeds for doubt in the back of their mind, even. Mm-hmm. It's like the the story that I don't remember if I told about from Tunisia, where uh, 
the police officer's wife started to question whether or not... You did. Yeah, you know. It's like, you know, that one single seed of doubt was enough to have this kind of momentous effect for the for the movement. So never think that what you're doing is insin- insignificant. And remember that even people who you think are disgusting and are in disgusting occupations, that they're people whose minds can change, hopefully. Right. Um, I'd say probably the the two other points that I'd like to make is, you know, we have to continue to stay vigilant, to stay focused, and to refer away from, or I guess start teetering away from, uh, is remaining peaceful and stagnant in one place. Um, I'm sure the few people that are listening to this might not like that idea, but if you look at historically every revolution that re- like cha- dramatically changed the politics of a country, not like socialism to democratic socialism or like fucking, I don't even know, but like, like from capitalism to communism, you have riots, you don't have peaceful protests you don't have demonstrations or you have civil wars right or you have coups or you know even say you're augusto or not augusto that was the why did i do that if you're i salvador allende in chile and Mm -hmm. you become an elected president of a country and you say you want to bring marxism or socialism you're gonna die right you're gonna be killed and that's exactly what happened. Military coups. You know, these things happen. There's real consequences to leftism in power sometimes. Right. And so the key to establishing a real movement that has any sort of left-leaning goals is to make it known that you're willing to fight for it. Right. It's that willingness to fight. I'd just like to really quickly shout out a book. It's called This is an Uprising, How Nonviolent Revolt is Shaping the 21st Century. Part of what the beginning of this book admits is that in the 20th century, you see a big, uh, a higher success rate for violent movements than nonviolent movements in achieving their goals. But in the limited time in the 21st century that we've had, we've seen a shift towards nonviolence with, you know, what the authors of this book argue is better results, but what you're seeing is smaller results. You're seeing people going out and do social movements over voting, like, you know, the ability to vote. You're not talking about... Or not the ability to vote, just, like, elections, you know? You're seeing, like, these small, seemingly inconsequential movements that are successful, but when it comes to the big issues like revolution or civil rights or, you know, the end of, you know, the colonization of people of color in America, you know, these are big things. These don't get accomplished through sit-ins or walking through the park or holding signs. These are things that might 
be worth fighting for, and maybe we will need to fight for. Which I would like to make clear, as I did the last time I brought this up, that this is not an invalidation of these attempts. This is not a negation of what they have accomplished, but it's an understanding that although they have made accomplishments, those accomplishments do not get us to a place where the systematic problem the the institution that exists within the society we live in will be gone. You will just simply solve, or not even solve, attempt to solve a portion of that problem. It's, it's true because I think that might kind of have gotten lost in part of our conversation. <clears throat> We're not talking about a movement to defund the police, at least from my point of view. I want a movement to decolonize America. Right. That's what the real left position is. The left position might be abolish the police. It might be defund the police. But if you want to get to the is- the issue of systemic racial inequalities in America, you have to look at it through the lens of decolonization and the lens of anti-capitalism. Mm-hmm. That's how all of the issues uh, in America, the systemic issues of American society can be linked directly to those two big ideas, which are colonialism and capitalism. I, I couldn't agree more. Um, so... <clears throat> Now I'd like to think about what it is we should be expecting with these demonstrations, Nothing that I said. Right. Absolutely nothing (laughs) that I said will be accomplished. So that, that is, that is very important to note. That is, things stand, I don't sense any real change, or even in the actions that are being taken by these demonstrators. But there is hope in the sense that Maybe these movements precipitate into something that can develop over the next 10 to 20 years. Right, right. You know, where you get this first grain of movement against the system. It's important to recognize that this is the first real movement for, you know, people of color in America since the civil rights movement because of how bad America's blindness to its own, you know, injustices are. Right. And I think it's it's also important to note i we'll wrap it up after this uh i guess but like it's important to note two things um one if you and this is a pretty small one but if you have someone you know or just even someone you're interacting with on social media frequently that tries to tell you that you should be thinking of doing things like martin luther king did Know that they also killed him. Like, Martin Luther King is revered as being who really shaped the civil rights movement. And they, like someone that the the government that governs over us shows support for, and they still killed him. So that's point number one. Point number two that it is insanely imperative to make is that also the civil rights movement as just a general movement to speak on, like... That took 10 plus years for a change. You are seeing, you had Ferguson, which I would equate with being the first true attempt at a revolution, or at least as a true demonstration in the climate that we've had in this country now for so, so long. I just remembered a term that we should have been using like this whole episode. The distinction between revolution, the systemic change, and 
Ref-olution, which is for reform. Oh, yes, see, I, I learned know that, that one. one. I learned that one this Look year. Yeah. You go. Ref-olution is what we're seeing in these movements. Is I that wish a I slang term? This. Yeah, ref revolution. <laughs> That's fucking amazing. Oh, I God. wish I remembered what book it was in, but I've been using it ever since. You know, these are revolutions. Right, exactly. These are not revolutions. And uh, to the Bob, probably two or three liberal people that might still be listening and are like, well, I this sounds awful and it sounds dangerous and it sounds They're like I like that revolution thing. Yeah. Let let me let me tell you. This is to this all right, I'm gonna actually extend this to my grandma and grandpa. Hi grandma and grandpa. Um just so you know, I don't want you to be afraid anymore. Um actually Antifa was solved in the United States. And you actually don't have to worry about these radical leftists showing up at your house and kidnapping you and throwing you in re-education camps to make you a communist monster. In fact, they never even set foot in the United States. We are so good that we eradicated them before they even came. So it's perfectly okay and you are safe and you don't have to worry about that anymore. Nice. Yeah. Yeah, there are never any... That doesn't happen here. <laughs> and that doesn't like, happen around these parts. Because so. my grandma straight up, like, goes through and locks all the doors, all the windows, because there was a protest at the Rome Police Department, and she's like, they're coming. <laughs> <laughs> they're coming. Because they just fucking... They just chow on Fox News like it's fucking... A Big Mac that just combo meal brings it right back to the issue of propaganda. Yeah, but both sides have it. Fuck. Uh, also, the Democrats too. I'd like to make that explicitly. Clear. I would like to put on my ceremonial wreath and give them the double middle finger on Capitol Hill while kneeling for eight minutes and forty six seconds. Speaking of ceremonial wreath, um, can we talk about the fact that? I I am this will be the end point. This will be my closing joke, I guess, and then we'll sign off. But I never in a million years would have thought that the headline or even the story that Nancy Pelosi put on a ceremonial African and I'm sorry, I do not know the word for it. It looks like a a a scarf of some sort to me. I'm sorry for not knowing the name of it. But she put that on and instructed the rest of the Democrats to do the same thing. And then kneeled in in the fucking building for 8 minutes and 46 seconds. And I can't believe that I live in a while, time... While social distancing. Yeah, I can't believe that I live in a time where I'm not quite sure if that's a satire dream I fucking came up with in my mind while far too high. Or something that actually fucking happen parody mimics reality which is also mimicking parody which is just mimicking reality and uh, on that fucking awful note i don't know how i'm gonna survive for the rest of the night after that welcome to 2020 (laughs) folks we're halfway done yep uh yeah everybody have a, a great night or day or afternoon or orgy depending on where you're listening this to this true stay safe uh, stay sane use rubbers kids yeah and uh i guess that's gonna be it goodbye now <laughs>